All right, James chapter 1, worship. We're talking about real worship. We're talking about the kind of worship that God would look at and say, that's the purest, most pristine, most desirable expression of what I would consider God-honoring worship. It looks like this. James is boiling down real Christianity in terms of how it lives and looks. You want to know what genuine faith lives like? That's the book of James, those five chapters, 108 verses. The description of a real Christian in action. Real faith, living faith, displays itself. It doesn't just communicate. The essence of your faith in action by way of worship as it relates to God is at the end of chapter 1. And we're back in chapter 1, verse 27 today. We began this before I went out of town, and we're going to come back to it because I don't want you to just hear it give a nod of affirmation to it. I want you to wrestle with how it becomes a part of your active life, because part of what James has has said to us is there is a kind of learning that doesn't result in doing, and that's deceptive to a Christian. We're to be more than hearers. We're to be diligent doers. Real Christianity manifests itself in the applied uh, reality of truth. So this is real Christianity in action. And James would say, verse 27, James chapter 1, real religion is clothed in charity and in purity. If you want to know what pure religion looks like, it's compassionate charity and personal purity. So let's read the verse, and then we're going to jump right in, because I want to have some time to apply this today. We already unpacked some of it, but because it's been a few weeks, we'll, we'll need to touch some of the truths about it. Verse 27, this is. The word is is a present tense verb called a static present. It is eternally this way. It's like an axiomatic, undeniable, unchangeable, immutable. This is reality. This is pure and undefiled religion. Remember, the word religion is real worship. It's not formal. It's not external. It's the real deal. It is God-honoring worship. And so it's the purest kind, pure as the word we get cathartic from. It's undiluted. It's unpolluted. It's like pure water. My mother was telling me she just got back from Iceland, and apparently some of the purest water in the world is in Iceland. And you can drink any, any lake or stream, moving water, you can drink it, which is very rare. Um, 0.003% of the world's water is unpolluted. You hear that? 0.003, which means pure water is rare. Pure water has no pollutants. The purest water is distilled water. And Iceland has some distilled water because of the percolation and the kind of strata that it, that water flows through. This is talking about undiluted, unpolluted, no spot, untainted. What God would consider, and the word defiled in the Bible, when you're defiled, you can't worship. You're stained, which is why you get the next part of this verse. Keep yourself unspotted, because real worship requires unstained living. And unstained worship is not just personal purity. It involves compassionate activity. It's pure. It's pristine. 
undefiled, untainted. The words speak of the best worship, the purest and the most pristine. In other words, the essence of religion on display. Real worship looks like this. And this is what it always looks like. This is pure and undefiled religion. Now watch this. In the sight of our God. The the preposition is para, which means you're right alongside of him. You're in his presence, and from his vantage point, what he sees is if you were standing with him, and he was bearing an assessing witness as to what he would find the purest expression of true worship, it would be this. Whatever it is he's about to say, this is what I find as most appealing and most pleasing. And here it is, and we talked about it last time a little bit, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And I want to punctuate the word visit. Visit is more than you drop by. The word visit has the idea of you look with intensity, you evaluate, you assess. It involves seeing something. In other words, you do go, you visit. You do go, you do see. And when you're there, you pay attention. You look at the need, you assess the environment, you visit. It's actually a word which you could use for the word inspect. And then housed in that is the concept of care. Uh, In classical Greek, it was commonly used to visiting the sick, whether by a doctor or by a friend. In Jewish usage, it denoted a visit with an aim for seeing, caring, and supplying the need of the one that is in distress. So three concepts when you talk about visiting. It's going, seeing, it's inspecting, and it's helping, providing for support, furnishing the things necessary. And uh, this is the idea that is reflected in this infinitive is in the present tense, which means this is to be a habit of your life. This is not just Christmas and holiday zeal. This is the regular rhythm of your life. This is what honors God. Regular, habitual, rhythmic, visiting, going, looking, assessing, and caring for the needs of people, keyword, in distress. Orphans and widows in distress. The word distress has the idea of pressure. It's not just, hey, I'm not comfortable. I'm hurting. The Greek word is literally to crush or to be pressed together, to squash, to hem in. It comes from a word to break. So it's like they're, they're pressured to the point where they, they might unravel. The, they're, they're unsupported. They're vulnerable. And they're at the breaking point. And you're to move in, and you see it's used 45 times in the New Testament, this word distress, and it has to do with strong, deep pressure. They're under it. It's interesting. I saw this. According to ancient law in England, this word was used of those who refused to plead guilty, so they would put heavy weights on their chest and press until they confessed. They afflicted them with pressure in order to produce a confession. This is that that same word. So somebody's under pressure. And the somebody in this text are widows and orphans. Widows, women without husbands, most likely who have died. Because remember, women married earlier then, so the men would die earlier typically. Secondly, men went to war So there were those issues. And then 
as we talked last time, it involves really the, the heart of the word for widow is bereft or robbed. Somebody who is suffering loss, listen to this, because they've been left alone. And culturally, in the Christian community at this time, you had women left alone, not just because of death. They weren't just widowed because of a husband that had passed. They were widowed because, in some cases, because of polygamy and the prominence of it. When a man became a Christian, some of those wives were sent away. So you had women who were now alone. You had women that were vulnerable, widows who were left alone, and that situation could be driven by death, could be 1 Corinthians 7, driven by desertion, an unbelieving husband who says, I don't want this, I'm out of here. They're by themselves. Divorce is certainly an issue. Sometimes husbands are imprisoned. So you had women exposed, and they did not have the support system of some of the cultural support things that we have today. Although we mentioned last time, women who endure such difficulty certainly endure incredible challenge. 75% of their support system goes away when they're widowed. So he's talking about widows. And then orphans, the Latin word orbis, the word bereaved, signifies a child without a parent, uh, whether it's the loss of one parent or two, we think of it as two-parent loss, but uh, this word included the idea that you had a child, if the father particularly would be gone, the mother and the child would be exposed, and they were considered to be a part of this class uh, through death or abandonment, um, or the parents had died. So you're dealing with pure Christianity, pure religion, God-honoring, God-attractive worship, is when you proactively, listen to this, you proactively pursue going to serve and support and assess to the end that they have the care that God wants them to have because those most vulnerable, those most helpless are the concern of God. Which is what we talked about uh, also in terms of the heart of God. And I want to touch on this. There are a few verses I didn't share with you last time. But here this passage says, real Christians have a heart for people in distress. Real Christianity visits the vulnerable and helps the helpless. The most vulnerable and the most helpless, certainly at that time, and certainly we can argue in this time, is someone without the care and protection of a provider and a protector, a husband or a father. We're to move in because God cares and he ranks the care of orphans and widows among the highest expressions of your faith. So maybe just push the pause button and say, by way of just sensitizing your heart to the truth you're going to hear today, when's the last time you visited a widow or orphan in their distress? You personally, as a Christian, proactively, Because James would say, in the eyes of God, your father, that really matters to him. It's the purest expression of your faith in his view. (coughs) Why is this so important? I want to move from what God wants and regards this to what God says he is and does by way of motivation. Biblically, let's talk about the rest of the Bible. We just read what James says in this short little verse, pregnant with priority and pathos. 
God's heart for widows and orphans is clearly displayed through the entire Bible. This is, listen to me, this is the heart of God. This matters to him. Listen to what he says. Listen to what the Bible says about him. What he says of himself. This is, you know, the Bible's self-revelation. So here's what God says about God. Psalm 68, verse 5. When the psalmist says, you are the father of the fatherless. Actually, he says it this way. It's an emphatic way of saying it. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. Do you want to define God? This is a way of defining God. The father of the fatherless, the protector of widows. Listen to Psalm 10, verse 14. The psalmist again says, but you, God, listen to what God says about himself by way of self-revelation, but you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. It's the idea of visiting. You see it. You're in a position to assess it. But I like this too. You see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief. You consider it, which means you don't just see it, you assess it, you consider it, you engage it, and you take it in hand, which is a way of saying you act. So you see it, it matters, you assess it, you consider it, and then you act to address it, which is very similar to what we as the children of God are exhorted to do, which would be do what he would do as Christ followers and as God reflectors. You consider the grief, you take it in hand. The victims, that would be those, the fatherless and the widow, the victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. So if that's who he is by self-revelation, what should we be? Verse 17, Psalm 10, you have heard, O Lord, you have heard, O Lord, you will incline your ear. So you hear the need or you hear the appeal and you're listening to vindicate, which is an interesting Hebrew word, to value someone and their dignity to take action for their justice or equity to promote them, to prepare them, to protect them, to provide for them, to vindicate them is basically to look at them as valuable, which they were not assessed in that culture. So I hear your need, I look at your situation, and out of value for you, out of a recognition of your dignity, I am moved to vindicate that value by acting on your behalf. Because to ignore your need devalues you. To look at you in your most vulnerable place and walk on by to ignore your appeal says you really don't matter. And the God of heaven says, no, no, let me tell you what I do. I move. And when they pray, I act. When they make the appeal. I act on the behalf of the fatherless and all the oppressed. That's who God is. How do we know that? He said, what should we be? Reflections of that. Part of the reason the world rejects Christianity, they don't see enough of that. The purest religion reflects the purity and beauty of God. 
The Bible reveals God as someone who hears the cry of the needy and he cares. I want to quote again the verse we touched on last time, Exodus 22. This is in the law. You must not mistreat any widow or orphan. You must not. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me in distress, I will surely hear their cry. My anger will be kindled and I will kill you with a sword. Now, I would call that strong language. You mess with them, I will deal with you. Then your wives will become widows and your children will be the fatherless. Judges, God judges for them. This is Deuteronomy 10, 18. God executes justice for the orphan and widow. He shows his love for the stranger alien, we could say immigrant, by giving him food and clothing. That's what God does. Therefore, that's what his people should do. Psalm 146.9, the Lord protects the stranger. He supports the fatherless and the widow. He establishes Proverbs 15.25, their border. He protects their space. God makes laws, and one of those laws reads this way, Deuteronomy 27, verse 19, cursed. Cursed is he who distorts justice which is right behavior toward an alien, orphan, or widow. So this is the people of God and the proclaimer of the will and the way and the law of God says, you know what should happen to the person who mistreats a foreigner who would be presumably vulnerable They don't have the assets. They're not a part of the community. They don't enjoy the support system. They come into the community. Aliens, another vulnerable group, orphans, no providers, no protectors, or widows recently losing the insulating protection of a husband. You mistreat them. You are cursed by God. You should be cursed as a consequence, which is not blessed. It's the antithesis to blessing. And then all the people said, Deuteronomy 27, they heard that and they said, amen, which is a way of saying, that's right. So if I stand Patrick up here today and say, this guy has mistreated an orphan and we're, we're going to deal with him God's way. We want cursing, not blessing, because God's not honored by that. I'd stand Patrick up. Here's the case. He's guilty. You would say, amen, Harry. Because you all get it. You all own it. You all understand it, that to not care for or to mistreat the most vulnerable is unacceptable. The bottom line is God has an attitude toward orphans and widows and those vulnerable and helpless. He cares very deeply for them, and he commands us to do that too because of that priority. Listen, every person is made in the image of God. They have dignity because of their creative reality. And if they're Christians, they're doubly dignified. Because they're now not only identified by the image of God, but by the person of Jesus Christ and their identity in him. God expects and provides security and protection for the rights of the helpless and the most vulnerable, the hopeless. 
How does he do that? Here's the big question. Through us. Through us. We're the expression of that, which is why it says, Psalm 82, verse 3, this is why he commands it. I want you to provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. I want you to uphold their rights. In other words, what pains my heart must pain your heart. What motivates my heart must motivate your heart. I want you to provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. I want you to uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. The word do justice is a Hebrew word which means to administer law or to leverage influence personally or in the community. Apply and leverage personal influence or government and law influence so that the most vulnerable, orphans and widows in this case, are treated rightly and justly. Big idea, you want to protect them. You want to see that they're dealt with with dignity. Number two, and that whole idea of what God expects in terms of executing justice would not just be protection, but provision. Do rightly by them would be the way that we would say it. You feel that flavor in Deuteronomy 14.29 when one of the, you know, where there were three tithes in Israel, there were two that were annual, a tithe to support the the tabernacle and the priest, a tithe to support the festive gatherings of God's people, which were kind of evangelistic. And then the third tithe would happen every third year where you brought a tenth of your income. It would all be collected and it would be distributed to the needs of the Levite who had no inheritance other than what was provided through the people. And that's why Deuteronomy says this, and I'll just read it. Deuteronomy 14, 29, the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, again, the person passing through, the alien, the immigrant, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled. You're to bring your offerings so that provision is had for those who don't have sufficient provision, the ones most needy, the ones most vulnerable. So here's the reality. The reality is this matters to God and it needs to matter to us. This is what he says, this is acceptable worship. I like this. I like you learning. I like you growing. I like you quoting verses. I like you being uh, an evangelistic witness. I like you to be righteous and, and ethical in the way you live and work. But don't underestimate how much I like it. When you visit, when you go, when you see, when you assess, and you personally provide, furnish their need, or see that that need is furnished, or leverage your influence individually or corporately to see to it that the needs of the most needy are cared for. That's pure, and that's undefiled. In my sight, I like that. I find that acceptable. That is pure and undefiled religion. There's an abundance of folks in our world. There'll be 800,000 widows this year in our country, the United States, the average age is 56. Widowhood lasts on the average 14 years. 
There are 14 million widows in the United States today. That's an average of 40 widows for every church. Listen to this. Upon the death of a spouse, a widow loses 75% of her support base. Half of those women will not be attending the church they attended with their husbands one year after becoming a widow. Widows have a 30% higher risk of death in the first six months after the death of their husband. And the poverty rate among widows is three to four times higher than elderly married women. They're vulnerable. That's the point. So it is three things, and I'll just highlight this. Good one, jump into the, wit- the orphan side of this. Three things women really want or widowers want. And obviously a woman is more vulnerable than a man, presumably, because of maybe the challenge of income production. I know I have, my wife has served and worked in our family as homemaker and housekeeper and caregiver. But if something happens to me, she's got to learn a whole new way to secure income. She will be vulnerable, irrespective of how much money may be set aside if I go to heaven earlier than she would like or we would think. She's going to be exposed. Here's what widows say they need and want. Number one, they want you to connect. Number two, they want you to communicate, have a conversation because they feel like they've become invisible. They don't know where they fit. They want to stay connected, and if they go through a difficult season emotionally where they don't feel like they want to be pursued, as I've read this, they want you to pursue them. And when they're ready, they're grateful that you've pursued them, and they'll open up their heart and life. Three things, connection, conversation, and inclusion. Because now they feel like a fifth wheel. I don't know where they fit. Everybody's married. Everybody has kids. I used to be in that group, but now I'm no longer in the group. Help them be included. Invite them. Encourage their family members to care for them. And I'll have time to teach you this today. But when Jesus was hanging on the cross, you remember this is John 19. He looked, whoops, thank you. About ready to hurt myself. Jesus, hanging on the cross, looks at the disciple John and says, here's my mother. Thank you, Patrick. Here's my mother. Take her into your household. Behold, my mom she becomes a part of your family. This is John 19, 26, and 27. You think about that. I'm on the cross. I've got all of the realities that are converging on me in that moment. And in the priority of all the priorities, I see my mother and I do what family members are supposed to do, which is see that they're cared for, which is really, this is what I can't take the time to teach today is 1 Timothy 5 which says you have a duty to your family. 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16 says, widows are to be cared for first by their family. So encourage family to take care of family. And then the church is to care for widows in need, which is what Paul unpacks in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But I really wanted to talk a little bit about orphans today. Can I do that? If I need to come back to 1 Timothy 5 to unpack that, I will, in terms of the biblical um, 
inspired instruction about the kind of women that you're to care for and the way you're to care for them. But the big idea is family and friends take care of a widow first, and then the church supports those who do not have family and friends to care for them. It's our job. Let's talk orphans for a minute. There are roughly, according to UNICEF, 150 million orphans in the world today. You took the equator and put every child who's orphaned shoulder to shoulder, you couldn't fit them all on the equator. A lot of children exposed to the vulnerability of being without a parent. So, the, you know, the equator's 25,000 miles. You put them shoulder to shoulder, they would not fit. The number of children under the age of 18 who have been co- coerced or induced to take up arms as children's soldiers is about 300,000 of them. Fifty countries currently recruit orphaned children to fight. More than 17 million children have lost one or both parents to AIDS. 15 million of them live in sub-Saharan Africa. Worldwide, an estimated 300 million children are subjected to violence, exploitation, and abuse, child labor, armed conflict, child marriage, sex trafficking, 21 million in the world today are forced to labor. 26% of them are children. If you're a child in forced labor, your life expectation is two to seven years. You're without the protection of a parent. You're exposed to whoever and whatever, and you can end up in labor that results in a shortened life. And this is even difficult to talk about, but the trafficking for sexual purposes is a multi-billion dollar industry. That industry will produce more profit than Nike, Starbucks, and Google combined. With children as young as five who are purchased for that purpose. 80% of them will contract AIDS. In the United States, there are 10 million children living in institutions and more than 60 million children living on the streets. 443,000 are in U.S. foster care right now. One-third of them need to be adopted. That's 147,000. They are vulnerable to the same things, trafficking, AIDS, poverty. Five million will die due to hunger. That's 14,000 a day. In the United States, more than 20,000 children will age out of the foster care system. In other words, you can go up to the age of 18, and then when you get beyond that, you're out. You're on your own. 50% of them will have some employment by the age of 24. Most of them will become instantly homeless. Of the majority of orphans, a striking, listen to this, 95% are over the age of five. So it's children that are older, and they need a variety of things. And this is what Isaiah would say. This is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Defend the orphan. Step up. Here's a way to think about it, and I'm talking to me too. I was saying to someone yesterday in Santa Clarita, a businessman that I engaged with, I said, you know, I hardly ever think about this. I don't know enough about it. I'm presuming somebody's doing it. 
I'm willing to contribute when giving the opportunity or someone challenges me. But I don't know that I'm paying attention to this in the ways that God would want me to pay attention to this. And here's my big bottom line for you today. You can't do everything, but you need to do something. Nobody can do everything, but every Christian can do something. Because the Bible says, defend the cause of the orphan. Caring for the marginalized of society, widows, orphans, and immigrants lies at the heart of Yahweh's covenant with his people. It was on display in the Old Testament. If you were an orphan, you were taken in. Even in the early New Testament church, if you were orphaned, parents who couldn't have children were expected by the church to adopt those children. That was just part of their culture. Caring for the marginalized of society was on display in the Old Testament in Israel, and it was in display in the early church. And it always included, listen to this, inviting them into community and into family. It seems apparent that in Old Testament culture and in New Testament culture, early church, those disenfranchised were cared for by the community of God's people. And couples who could not have children were the first to care for them. Why? Because God loves them. And he expects us to reflect his heart because God cares for them and he expects us to care for their heart. That's pure and undefiled religion. And that's a need that undeniably exists. So here's what I don't want you to hear. I came here today to guilt you. I came here today to calibrate you, not with a personal opinion, but a biblical conviction, to prioritize something that needs to be prioritized. Here's my exhortation to you. Learn and read. Understand and decide before God how you should invest for a need that undeniably exists. Now, I took the liberty yesterday of reaching out to Rusty, because Rusty and Summer are involved in this in ways that I'm not. And I said, Rusty, I want you to finish up Cornerstone on Sunday with a few how-tos. If this is a place where you want to invest because you should, how could you? So, Rusty, if you'll come and just share how this group might locally, practically go, you know what? Orphans, children in need, here's how you might do it. And and let me just say this. This could be a great gift to God as an expression of your Christmas holiday. Go ahead, Rusty. All right. So I know we've talked about some things recently with November, kind of emphasizing uh, Adoption Awareness Month. I want to get a little bit more practical. A lot of times we'll just invite you to a seminar to talk about it. This is my seminar, so I'll take a couple extra minutes of Sojourner's time. Um, You want me to fight them off? Sure. (laughs) Or they can come in. They they can help, too. So we talked about careportal.org, right? So it's it's an up-and-coming thing that we're starting to do here at Grace Community Church. We found a really practical way that you can see those needs. So if you all write down careportal.org, At the top, there's an open requests tab. 
You click on it, you search by LA County, and every day there's new requests. Those requests, a lot of times, will consolidate last sermon and this sermon, because a lot of times it's single moms with kids who are about to lose their kids because of various problems. So just to put it in perspective, last night, there's an urgent need for somebody who, if they don't get their rent money, they lose their house, and then their kids are going to get lost. There's a car seat, there's beds, there's dressers, there's clothes. These are practical things. You don't have to be trained. You don't have to do any of that. All you need to do is just go look at what the needs are. It's constantly updating. Um, the technology portal aspect of it has a little of a back end. So write this down, hands for hope at gracechurch.org. If there's a need there you want to meet, email that address. It'll come to me, and we'll help you guys get connected to take care of it. Right. So there's about 12 churches in our area that are participating. Um, I don't know how active the other churches are. Our church is not very active. So this is a great opportunity for us to become very active in taking care of those needs. So that's one. The other we talked about is safe families. So safe families is kind of like the, the preventative measure for foster care. So L.A. County is going to come in and take kids away due to neglect, abuse, whatever it may be. Safe families is the biological parent saying, I need help. And they're wanting help not from DCFS. They're wanting it from the church. So Safe Families is a church-based organization. Our church is partnering with all of Crest for this. And it's basically you're going to offer counseling to parents. You're going to potentially even take their kids for a little while and not be under the care of L.A. County, but rather be under the care of Safe Families organization. So it's really opening up your life, your home, as Harry said, to to really care for these kids, but also care for the parents. Because the whole purpose is to keep kids with their biological family whenever possible. So that's another one. Again, if you're interested, email that email address. I'm happy to help. Um, the other is, is a lot more of a commitment, but something that I really would encourage. So foster families. So you mentioned there's 146,000 foster kids in, in United States. About 35,000 of those are in LA County alone. So a very major percentage is in LA County. In this room, I know of one foster family, um, and it's a lot of work. It's re it's really challenging, but it's something that we're called to do, and it's something that's a very big deal. Um, and we'd be more than happy to have anyone over to talk to you guys about it. We'd love to have more foster families in here um, because the need is great. And I think a lot of times, as Harry mentioned, we can forget about the little kids, right? So we talk about it all the time. It's in James 127, but these are little kids who are coming up, for example, on Christmas. And they either are going to be in an institutional facility or they're going to be in a home where there's no gospel presented. So there's a big need, and we're always advocating to get that need met here through this church. So by all means, reach out. We can help you get in contact with the foster family agency to help you through that. Um, the other is a lot more practical. So... Donald and Shonda over there are the only foster family I know in here. Sorry to put you on the spot. There's always needs, right? So they took in kids. They weren't necessarily prepared for it. It was actually their first kids that they, they've ever had. Um, so even just practical things. Their, their son needs shoes, size 10 to 11, boys. They're right over there. You guys can get in contact with them. Wave, Donald. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They need a convertible car seat. 
um, practical things as the kids grow up. You know, it's, it's easy for us to think, well, we'll just go buy that, right? But at the end of the day, they don't know what the long-term goal with these kids are. So building up an investment in them to help with that is very helpful. Um, and even just a discipling couple, right? So there's a lot of challenges that come with bringing in outside people. So they'd be more than happy to have people who are older and wiser that can come along and even just give them practical parenting advice. Um, just to kind of, we, here at Grace, we partner with two different agencies that are called foster family agencies. So one of them is Olive Crest. So if you're interested, look at their website. They have a lot of practical things to do there. Um, and that can be obviously being a foster family, but it could also be things like mentor programs, uh, tutoring programs, things along those lines. So these are kids who a lot of times they're in foster homes that it's the, it's the money for the foster parents. So there's very little interaction with the parents and it's, they're just there, they're sleeping, they're eating and that's it. So they need help with mentorship. They need help with how do I do this math problem with the new core curriculum, all those sort of things. So there's a lot of difficulty there and Olive Crest is great with that. Um, and then the last one that I'll, I'll talk about is uh, CASA which is a court-appointed special advocate. So the court system has acknowledged that there's a big gap between communicating with the kids and the judge. And if you, if you read Proverbs 31.8, it's speak for those who have no voice for themselves, basically. And this is a great opportunity for doing that. So these are, these are kids who otherwise are represented by a guardian ad litem who's never met them before. And they go to the judge and they say, this is what's best for the kid. And they have no clue. They've never met the kid. So Akasa's job is to go and meet with the kid, to go spend time with them at the park, get to know them, get to know their needs, and then to go before the court and speak to the judge and to say, look, this is what's best for this kid. And the judge will listen because you're a certified court-appointed special advocate. So there's a program for getting certified. Again, it can be through Olive Crest. Any of these that make sense to you, I would love to have my phone blowing up with emails of people wanting more information, um, and we're more than happy to have people over to talk about it. So, so if they're blowing up your phone, mm-hmm. what would that number be? Did you give them that? <laughs> How do you? What number the do you want? Email them to address. So e- hands for hope okay. at gracechurch.org. <laughs> sort of the phone. <laughs> Actually, I think my name tag has my number on it. <laughs> yeah, my daughter wrote my number. I don't yeah. know why. So stay right there, Rusty. We're done. But listen to this. This is Isaiah 117, God talking to his people. Learn to do good. Doesn't come natural. I want you to do this. You're not aligned with my priorities. I want you to learn to do good. What does that look like? I want you to seek justice. I want you to promote it. I want you to live it. I want you to reprove the ruthless. I want you to step in the way of the person that's abusive to those vulnerable. Because he goes on to say, last two things, I want you to defend the orphan. And I want you to plead for the widow. That's what I want from you. You're my people. This matters to me. I want it to matter to you. Because it does matter to them. Can you say amen to that? All right, so listen, I don't know what God's hand or plan is for you. No one can do everything. And I'm quoting somebody. This is not a hairy quote. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something 
This is the time to engage. This is the passage we're in. This is the Bible. This is the truth. This is reality. Let's live it, not just learn it. Can you say amen to that? So here's Rusty. You, you can read his name and number right here. And, uh, but let's do something together. Let's make a difference. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to consider your heart and to make our heart aligned, learn to do good, to, to live in such a way that reflects what matters. And Lord, I would confess, for me, I get distracted by a myriad, a wealth of activities that may not reflect the purest expression of my faith. And I just pray that we would adapt and adjust to the end that your heart is on display through our heart and the way it expresses itself in a world of need. Well, we do plead for the widow and the orphan today. And Lord, help bring people to mind, even widows in our own church who are trying to navigate their way and maybe don't know how to reach out. Help us to be proactive, to visit and pursue, to engage, to include, so that they feel the love and support of their father and their heavenly husband. Lord, you're the best and the greatest, and we're grateful. Make us people who reflect you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.